everybody. How are we all doing? I'm Michael. I'm joined by Alex, as always. How's it going? And we're here with a new episode of Falling Through Potholes, a podcast about video game plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Good, good. I'm doing all right myself. I, uh... In the midst of writing this podcast episode, I ended up falling into a very, very weird video game hole because I decided to start replaying one of my favorite games of all time, which is actually going to be the subject of today's episode. Uh, it actually inspired me to like put together today's episode, and then I I didn't end up actually starting to write it until like Friday, <laughs> mm. <laughs> because right. I was too I was too busy playing it. But um. It's fresh. It's fresh in your mind now. It's very fresh in my mind. Very, very fresh in my mind. And I'm uh, I'm super excited about it because it's uh, it's a game that's very, very nostalgic for me at this point. Or a series that's very nostalgic for me at this point. And speaking of nostalgia, I wanted to ask you a question. Okay. How familiar are you with something called the 50s Revival? Not very. Uh, no, doesn't ring any bells. Well, you've definitely have experienced the 50s Revival. So the 50s revival was a trend of cultural nostalgia that overtook America primarily in the late 70s and into like the early 80s. And it's something that's actually never really gone away. Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, exemplified by like movies like Grease, uh, Back to the Future, uh, even things like, you know, those weird pop-up diners that started to become popular in the 90s, mm -hmm. for instance, with all the chrome and whatnot. That's examples right. of 50s nostalgia culture, 50s revival. Right, talking about the good old days. Exactly. Now, cultural nostalgia has never just been limited to this decade. Uh, for instance, 20s nostalgia was incredibly big in the 60s. Hmm. And right now, 80s nostalgia has had like a nearly decades-long resurgence. Absolutely. And does not seem like stopping anytime soon. It's probably going to be like the new 50s nostalgia in many ways. I'm so tired of it. Uh, me too. I'm so me too. tired of the 80s. Oh, don't worry, man. This cool He-Man movie is coming to Netflix. It's going to be uh. great. I want to die. Anyways. <laughs> <laughs> that being said, 50s nostalgia in particular has had incredible staying power and cultural influence. To the point that, once again, while it may have reached its height in the late 70s, it arguably has never gone away. Now, there's a few reasons for this. But for the sake of time, we're going to keep it very simple. The 50s were an oasis in American history compared to the turmoil and hardship of the Great Depression and World War II in the 30s and 40s, respectively, as well as what came after the 50s, which is the social upheaval of the civil rights movement and counterculture in the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. Now, America had just left World War II unscathed, unlike the rest of the world, which was just absolutely devastated. Right. And the average American was flush with cash and it was a time of scientific wonderment and discovery for a very certain part of America. Right. Uh, white America, to be specific. Now, when we do talk about this particular bit of nostalgia, it should be noted that we are talking about what is an almost myopic look at American life. Like if you were to ask France about how things were going in the 1950s, they would heavily disagree with <laughs> uh, it being a particularly good period. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, if you lived in nearly any other part of the world, this obviously doesn't land as hard. And if you're a minority in the United States who lived during this period, you might even find it a bit insulting. Mm -hmm. This is because a lot of this nostalgia very deliberately ignores the troubles and hardships that people faced during this era. The hardships that would eventually lead to the civil rights movements, among other things. It also ignores another aspect that was popular during this time. 
it's been kind of whitewashed out a little bit, which was a fascination and celebration of the atomic bomb. America's best friend, until it wasn't. Yeah. So, Alex, are you familiar with something called atomic culture? I'm not, but I can take a guess on what it is. I bet you could. How about you give me a guess? So, I'm guessing it's sort of like the glorification of the age of the atom. The mm-hmm. idea of like, oh, the atom bomb is like the breakthrough discovery that will lead to the future and give us nuclear energy and robots and flying cars. You know what? Yeah, that more or less is it. Yeah, atomic culture refers to the fervor that the average American had around nuclear technologies. Now, not just the bomb, but the concept of nuclear power in general. And yeah, Mm -hmm. like the different things that it could potentially give us. Now, this started right away after the first bombs fell on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Like, you know, these, mm-hmm. It was announced that we used these weapons, and almost immediately, America seemed to fall in love with it. Not everybody, mind you. There was mm-hmm. multiple news reporters and uh, multiple people who do, like, were doing commentary at the time were like, oh, man, what if people use these on us? That would suck. Everyone but- else, though, was like, wow, look at this. It ended the war. It's great. And America became obsessed with it. Mm-hmm. Everything from alcoholic cocktails, such as the atomic bomb, songs <laughs> such as Atomic Bomb Blues... And even the bikini all took inspiration or had some fascination with nuclear weapons. Yeah. Were you familiar about that? That the bikini was I did after? not. That's that's amazing. That's yeah. morbidly hilarious. Isn't it? <laughs> I guess for further context, the bikini is technically a French creation, but it was named after Bikini Atoll, where the US mm. tested nuclear weapons. Mm. <laughs> now, this was a short-lived love affair, mostly because Not long after the U.S. deployed the first nuclear weapon, the Soviets had their first successful nuclear test in 1949. Now, this by itself wasn't enough to deter America's love for the bomb, as exemplified by the 1955 serial that had little pieces that were shaped uh, by, like, atomic bombs for children. (laughs) (laughs) Right? (laughs) However, two years later, uh, America kind of figured out that maybe this wasn't such a good thing. Because in 1957, the Soviets launched their first satellite, Sputnik Mm. 1. And America, at the same time, had their own high-profile failure in Project Vanguard. And with that, America now all of a sudden had to deal with the threat of a nuclear attack from a potentially technologically superior Soviet Union. All of a sudden, this seemed like a real possibility, and America's attitude towards the bomb shifted overnight. Now, once again... There were a lot of Americans out there who were like, no, nuclear bombs are a bad thing because, you know, we got reports right. from Hiroshima and Nagasaki and we saw the potential implications for this. But America as a whole was kind of cool with the bomb up until it's like, oh, wait, it could get dropped on us. Right. That's bad. Yeah. And so because of that, the specter of nuclear war then would hang over the everyday American in nearly all aspects of their life for about the next 30 years. Mm. So... Once again, when the 70s and 80s fell in love with all all aspects of the 50s, the only thing that didn't come along with it was this love for the atomic age as well. As it continued into the 90s, however, one game series decided to look closely at Americans' fascination with the bomb and just completely run with it, creating a beloved and occasionally divisive series of games that we're going to talk about today. We are, of course, referring to the Fallout series. Yeah. Alex, what's your experience with Fallout? Uh, I have played a little bit of Fallout 1, Hmm. decent amount of Fallout 3, and I think that's actually... Oh, and I played uh, some of Brotherhood of Steel. Wait, 
All right. Yeah. That Brother of the Steel? Yeah, that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I had a friend in high school who had it, and we played the co-op for a bit. I, I think we played a co-op. Either that or we just handed off because there was no co-op in the game. I can't remember. There is co-op in that game. Okay. Oh, man. Oh. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 was not, it was not ideal. Oh, yeah, not at all. Not at all. So, yeah, you actually don't have a ton of experience to Fallout. Not a ton, no. Hmm. Well, good. This is exciting, then, because um, I have a ton of experience with this. Uh, okay. Or more accurately, I have a ton of experience with the Bethesda side right. of Fallout. Right. And a little bit of uh, the Black Isle interplay side, which is the first mm -hmm. two games. But it's a hell of a series. It's one of my favorite of all time. It's good. Uh, and this is despite all the flaws that it has, and we're definitely going to talk about a lot of those. Uh, for a little bit of background, it's set in a post-nuclear Holocaust America, uh, usually telling the story of some unnamed nobody who, through circumstance and luck, ends up shaping the future of the American wasteland. In their travels, they have to deal with all kinds of mutated creatures, the crumbling remnants of old America, and through their action will usually decide the fate of various factions of human survivors, among other things. Uh, the franchise itself has a pretty strong continuity, and through the various sequels, you'll actually see you'll actually see society slowly put itself back together in a way that it feels overall satisfying. Uh, like, it's kind of cool seeing, like, the progression from, like, Fallout 1 to 2 to New Vegas and see, like, how things like the New California Republic get started and, like, mm -hmm. slowly turns itself into, like, America 2.0 or, right. like, um, even Fallout 3 and 4, how they, like, kind of build up the Brotherhood of Steel on that. Mm -hmm. uh, both series, both uh, halves of the series seem to do a relatively okay job of that in, in a way that uh, I, I do tend to enjoy. Mm -hmm. Now, as for its development... It's kind of a mess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that reminds me. I also put a few hours into Fallout 76. <laughs> so. Oh, uh, yes. I, I've, I've touched both sides of this series. Yes, you have. Oh, man. <laughs> We're sadly not going to talk too much about Fallout 76 because it turns out it doesn't really have a story. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll One talk. of several things it's missing. One of several things it's missing. Oh, man. We will touch on it briefly in part two, but yeah, I I expected there to be more to Fallout 76's story, and it turns out they still haven't quite gotten around to that. Yeah, they're working on it, question mark? Are they still working on that game? Yes, they are. Oh, my God. Yeah, they came out with a major update a couple months ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm uh, just okay. as surprised. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, good for them, I guess. Mm-hmm. So yeah, its development is kind of a mess. And it's not just like the Bethesda half, too. The right. Interplay Black Isle part is a mess as well. In fact, you honestly could do an entire podcast episode on the various rights issues, development snafus, shady business dealings, and the like. And I might very well do one, actually. <laughs> <laughs> because it's wild. But for our purposes, we're going to keep it short. Especially since for things like Fallout 76, there are plenty of great YouTube videos that cover the debacle of Fool. So mm -hmm. if you want to learn about bad bad nylon bags, I'll put some links into the show notes for you to learn all about that. So let's go over to the cliff notes of its development history. Uh, start. We'll start with uh, a game in 1988 called Wasteland. Alex, have you ever heard of Wasteland? I have, yes. It's a cool game. It's a cool game. Uh, Wasteland was developed by Interplay Studios, a California-based development house known for Earthworm Jim, MDK, 
and the best edutainment game on the market, Mario Teaches Typing. Oh, boy. Yeah, was really surprised by that last one, actually. Yeah. So, it was released in 1988 on various personal computers, uh, published by Electronic Arts, and it tells the story of a post-apocalyptic future where, 100 years after a nuclear war, remnants of the U.S. Army have to defeat insane AI bent on replacing flawed humans with perf genetically perfect specimens, all while dealing with mutated creatures, raiders, and the like. The game was very successful and well-received, and development on two sequels was greenlit by Electronic Arts. However, by the time Interplay got around to developing these games, there was a slight problem, Alex. Mm -hmm. uh, Interplay became a publisher, and they wanted to publish the sequels themselves. Oh, boy. Now... That was a slight problem for Electronic Arts because they're mm -hmm. like, we don't sell our IPs. Right. And so Interplay was like, well, I guess we're not developing sequels to Wasteland. Interplay is such a mess. Interplay is so freaking shady. They are. They are so incredibly shady. My God. <laughs> oh my God. The entire history of Interplay is just one bad faith contract after another. It really is. Oh, I can't! I can't wait till we get to part two and talk about their attempts to develop a, a Fallout MMO. Oh God! <laughs> that they most certainly did not have the rights to. <laughs> <laughs> so, Interplay though did find a way to work around this, Alex. Mm -hmm. They decided to essentially rip off their old game and just make a new franchise. <laughs> <laughs> and so they got started on what would eventually become Fallout. Uh, spoiler alert, by the way, this is not going to be the first time Fallout is going to rip off itself. <laughs> <laughs> so, they created a new internal development studio called Black Isle Studios. Uh, legendary studio as far mm -hmm. as, like, PC gaming is concerned. Yep. Uh, in order to create the totally original Fallout, a story taking place 100 years after a nuclear war involving mutants, raiders, and remnants of the U.S. military in California. <laughs> <laughs> The serial numbers have been thoroughly filed off. Yep. The development of the game, though, was apparently rather fraught. Uh, it took about three years to complete. Development started in 94 and it finished in 97. And it was constantly under threat of being axed by Interplay Management, who considered the project risky and expensive. But probably, yeah, they're yeah, the know. ones who wanted to do it to the right? extent that they ripped off their own license to do it. <laughs> yeah, but they're like, wait, this is going to cost money to make? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Interplay's the best. They're so sketchy. Oh, the story's great, because like, apparently for the first six months, they literally just had one person working on the game. <laughs> and then they like licensed this um, development engine or, um, or uh, basically a game rule set, I think is actually the mm. more accurate thing to say, called GURPS, <laughs> uh, which stands for something. All right. And then they lost, like, they lost the rights to it, so they basically just, once again, copied it and filed off the serial numbers. Oh, God. The idea that Fallout's eventually going to become, like, a AAA title, well-beloved game that makes millions upon millions of dollars uh -huh. is insane to me. <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't have happened, but it somehow did. Yeah. So, eventually, though, the... They did get like a team of 30, ended up finishing this game, and upon release, it was a big success for Interplay. Mm. It reviewed very favorably, and its incredibly open-ended nature and dialogue-heavy story were singled out for praise. And it's considered one of the greatest games of all time. With that, though, I think it's time we talk about this highly praised story as we talk about the plot of Fallout. Alex, are you familiar with like kind of like the 
underpinnings of the fallout story at all or sort of i'm mm. not super familiar with where it goes all right this is going to be great then so to begin i think we need to do a bit of setup and talk about the store the backstory to fallout mm-hmm. so fallout takes place in a world that's very similar to ours yet with a few key differences so essentially the history of the world is the same up until the 1950s where instead of continuing to have things like individual states like oklahoma <laughs> the U.S. decided, hey, how about we just federalize and like even further? And so states were basically compacted together, and instead there are 13 zones of control. The flag was changed to the Betsy Ross flag from the American Revolution with you know 13 stars in a circle. Mm-hmm. Only now there's a big star in the middle to represent the United States. Right. Uh, the U.S. basically is, during this time, is like, how can we become more and more authoritarian? Mm-hmm. And also, while also at the same time, this might sound a little familiar to current events. Really, like, looking back to our past and glorifying it as the good old days. Yeah, that's that has become on the nose yeah. since then. In the 1990s, it, it wasn't so much, but now it, it kind of is, especially given that Betsy Ross flag is kind of side-eyed nowadays. Yeah. Which, thanks, assholes, for that <laughs> one. I like that flag. It's a good uh, flag. It's a good flag, and you had to ruin it. So, this isn't the only thing that has changed. The situation around the world has also considerably different. Uh, so, instead of the Soviet Union being like kind of the big bad boogeyman for the United States in the 20th century, the People's Republic of China fills that role instead. Like, the Soviet Union literally exists up until the bombs fall in Fallout. And they're just sort of hanging around being like, yeah, no, we're just kind of being chill, being mm. kind of cool here. Now, this sort of this might seem a little weird, but it kind of makes sense in the context of when this game was developed and released. Mm-hmm. By that time, the Soviet Union had fell, right. and there were even like talks about Russia like joining NATO and being this great ally to us. Uh, like just like John Colliner in Terminator Two said, "Wait, aren't they our friends now?" <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, that didn't really kind of that didn't happen now. Yeah, but... it didn't. It didn't work out. But you know, the thought was there at the time. The th- the thought was there, and so it made sense to like, shift the um, the PRC into that role instead. Mm-hmm. Finally, technology in the world would develop along a more retrofuturistic bent. Uh, retrofuturism, for those of you who aren't familiar, is like imagine like great steel trains that like fly through the sky, or like everything's shiny and chrome. Uh, think like you know the Rocketeer or Batman the Animated Series, like how mm-hmm. how like the basic look of that is. Um, Everything is rounded in metal and vacuum tube. And like, basically the idea is like, what if vacuum tubes and the 1950s never left? Right. So once again, think big rounded robots and Cadillac cars as far as the eye can see. So America at this time was apparently very idealized in the same way the 1950s was. If you're white and American, that's great. If you're anything else, it was terrible. Mm -hmm. And it became very acute as time went on and demand for resources became more acute. In 2050, oil reserves began to dry up, and in response, multiple countries went to war in order to gain control of these rapidly dwindling resources. The U.S. invaded Mexico, for instance. The European Commonwealth invaded the Middle East, and China just sort of invaded everyone. (laughs) (laughs) However, this still wasn't enough, and soon these resources were exhausted. The good news is that the U.S. military created a solution. Portable fusion power, which would soon lead to the development of fusion everything, such as fusion generators for power, fusion-powered robots, and very explosive fusion cars. (laughs) (laughs) 
This technology had the potential to solve the energy crisis, except for one problem. The United States are a bunch of dicks and refuse to share it. Ah. Yes. The problem is further exacerbated by the fact that the only remaining oil reserves are in Alaska, and the U.S. refuses to sell to anybody. Mm. <laughs> so in 2066, China takes matters into their own hands and invades Alaska, securing Anchorage and starting the Sino-American War. Or Sino-American War. At first, they were incredibly successful at repelling the Americans, and with their navy in control of the Pacific Ocean, the U.S. appeared unable to stop them. So the United States pressured Canada instead to let them pass through. Now, the Canadians allowed this, but then all their citizens rose up in rebellion, mm. and the U.S. went, nah, that's cool, we'll just annex you. Whatever, man. <laughs> and so, a country that is long in this universe, I should say, please don't get angry at me, Canada, was considered to be a little America in their eyes, was completely annexed, and was stripped of resources. So the state of affairs goes on for about 10 years, when the United States finally has a breakthrough. They develop power armor. Which, if you've seen any box art for a Fallout game, mm -hmm. you've seen some dude clad in power armor. That's what that is. Hulking armored shells powered by fusion cores that are able to take on hundreds of troops at a time. This proves to be all that is necessary to push the Chinese back and recapture Alaska. And even enough for them to launch an invasion of China. Although this invasion does go well, the strain of war has taken its toll. And food shortages and general fatigue of the American populace leads to food riots and general insurrection. Stalling the war effort and forcing the military to train their guns on their own civilians. For the Americans, this state of affairs didn't last long, as on October 23, 2077, a nuclear attack was detected from the Chinese mainland. The United States responded with a nuclear strike of their own, and within hours, a new war began, the Great War. And it ended at 9.37 the same day, with the nuclear annihilation of not only the United States and China, but the rest of the world as well. So hey, that sucks. Yep. World's over. But, uh, you know, don't worry. Capitalism has a solution for you. Because <laughs> you're like, how am I going to keep my family safe in the event of a nuclear apocalypse? Well, there's a, there's a company called Vault-Tec. And they, alongside the Defense Department, set up a project called Project Safehouse. Or a system of underground bunkers called vaults that would be set up across the country for the best, brightest, and richest Americans to retreat to when the bombs inevitably fail. Consisting of 114 vaults, these underground bunkers were meant to provide food and shelter for a period of time long enough for the surface radiation to wear off. Then people could exit, rebuild society, and everything would be great. So, this all sounds good, except for the bad news, which is Vault-Tec is kind of a dystopian nightmare company. Mm. And only 17 of these vaults were actually meant for these purposes. Because, you see, the rest of them were used for a variety of increasingly dumb experiments. Ah. Uh. In fact, they weren't even sure that these 17 vaults were even going to work. Uh -huh. So they were just control vaults. They're like, well, we'll just keep things simple here so you know, people are acting normal. While all our dumb experiments go on and we can see what happens. Such as, let's fill this vault full of clones of the same guy and see what happens. Right. Or one vault where the leader or overseer would rule for a year before being executed. So you'd have like, and then they were all democratically elected. <laughs> <laughs> so you have people being like, don't vote for me, vote for Joe. <laughs> He's a dick. <laughs> now, if these all sound arbitrary and pointless, it's because they totally were. But regardless. Also, doesn't the end of the world have to happen for any of these experiments to go ahead? So like, yeah. Who cares? Who cares yeah. what the outcome of the experiment is? Everyone's dead. Yeah, right. Yeah, it it um 
it, it, their plan kind of falls on their face a little bit. Who's left to collect or use the data? <laughs> so, so depending on the game, it either is like, well, the future society will be able to use the information for these experiments to have like you know better crops or like stronger humans or whatever. Other games set up the idea that, oh, they were just going to send out the signal, all these people were going to go to these vaults, and then they were going to start the experiment from there. Right. Like, without the bombs actually being dropped. Right, right. Uh, but it's uh, it's very, very random and, v- like, vague which games will actually do that or not. Right. Mm-hmm. Also, aren't they the ones ensuring the future of humanity? So don't don't some of the vaults need to work for that? Uh, yeah. Yeah, you know, that's that's why you got the 17 or so uh, test faults. It'll be fine. It'll be okay. fine. You, that's that's enough people, right? Sure. Probably. Yeah. Every- yeah, okay. Yeah, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. Everything was not fine. Well, actually, everything ended up being fine. And just by accident, it turns out. <laughs> because once the bombs fell, people retreated to these vaults and they were sealed. Some succeeded. Some failed. And in the case of Vault 13 in California, they worked until the water chip failed, leading to a wild adventure that sets up the story of Fallout. So, Fallout takes place in the year 2161 at Vault 13, an underground bunker in Southern California. We find out the water chip has broken, which is basically responsible for the filtration and pumping of fresh water for the entire vault. So, with the very real possibility that they'll run out portable water, or portable, jeez, potable water within five months or so the overseer of the vault sends out the unnamed vault dweller with the task of going to nearby vault 15 hopefully getting a hold of a spare water chip given a handgun some ammo and pointed in a vague direction the dweller wanders into the landscape so each of these games has a pretty similar like start uh in Mm -hmm. the sense of like you're usually a relatively unnamed and unknowable person Somebody you could really, like, implant your own personality onto, usually giving right. a name like the Vault Dweller or the Soul Survivor or Lone mm-hmm. Wanderer or something similar. Uh, the original Fallout is very, very interesting in the sense of uh, its story is kind of difficult to summarize because you can literally beat the game in five minutes <laughs> if you really know what you're doing. Right. And, and you could really just, like, ignore some really major players. Like, you don't have to talk to... I guess, spoiler alert, the Brotherhood of Steel at all. Mm-hmm. Like, you could just totally ignore those people. Um, and it's it's something that I, I actually find really, really fascinating about the original Fallout and its sequel, Fallout 2. Mm-hmm. It is incredibly open-ended. Right. Um, there's, like, a million stats, too, and all those stats do not only, like, control different aspects of your character, but also, could like, control the dialogue. Like, mm-hmm. if you're really good at shooting guns, for instance, you could have, like, dialogue options with Raiders where you're, like, you discover their guns are a little messed up, so you can, like, convince them to, like, you know, put down their guns or whatnot, or, like, get an advantage in combat, because you're like, oh, no, their safeties are on. Or, like, my personal favorite one, even if your stats are, like, very low, they can influence, like, things. Like, if you have a low intelligence, mm-hmm. you get access to certain dialogue options or allow you to, like, get past certain encounters, because, like, oh, he's dumb. Just let him do his thing. <laughs> Who cares? And it's something I really, really love about Fallout and Fallout 2 that kind of goes away after that. Right. Uh, but we're going to do our best to sum this up anyways mm-hmm. and go in what I think is the closest to the canonical uh, canonical series of events. So our vault dweller gets up, wanders down to the wasteland, and he discovers, he or she really, discovers that the post-apocalyptic America is a messed up place. 
Radiation has essentially made any species lucky enough to survive into like into like a mess of either extra hands and feet or mm-hmm. far larger and more aggressive than you could possibly imagine. This includes the common emperor scorpion becoming the hulking three-foot rat scorpion, <laughs> moles becoming the dog-sized mole rats, and cows inexplicably growing a second head, because why not? Yeah, you know, it happens. Mm-hmm. Humans aren't immune to this either. Now, if you're exposed to a ton of radiation nowadays, you're probably just going to either die, as your DNA just does have no idea what to do with that. Right. Or you're going to get cancer like 50 years down the road. Right. In Fallout, that might happen, or you might become a zombie-like creature called a ghoul. Ghouls are kind of cool, because they basically live forever, like their aging Mm -hmm. is turned off. In exchange, they look like zombies. So they are, of course, uh, kind of vilified, even though a lot of them are kind of cool. And as the series goes on, you will discover ghouls who have been living like over 200 years from before the Great War and whatnot. Now, some are also completely feral and have are completely insane and will try to eat you, but you know. Yeah, you know, it's, it's different strokes. Yeah, different strokes. Yeah, ghouls are pretty cool, although by the time Fallout 4 rolls around, uh, how a ghoul even works is going to become very questionable. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, I know in Fallout 3 they established that it's basically expected every ghoul will go feral one day. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they're just sort of a, a time bomb that no one knows when that's going to be. Mm-hmm. I, so yeah. I don't know if that's in the originals or not. I'm not sure if it is either, but um, Fallout establishes that ghouls still need to like eat and drink water. Right. Fallout 4 establishes that, I don't know, they can just live in a refrigerator for 200 <laughs> years <laughs> and be perfectly fine. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know. Oh, ah, can't wait to talk about that. So... The vault dweller gets to the location of Vault 15, only to find out that all those people had already left their vault and found it in a new town called Shady Sands, mm. led by a man named Eridesh, uh, basically kind of like a stoic sort of man who's like wants to do good by his people. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're at first a bit skeptical of the vault dweller, but after he saves his daughter Tandy, who's like a very idealistic 16-year-old girl, uh. and deal with a bunch of rat scorpions, they accept him and, and also are like, man, maybe outsiders are cool after all. And they also, like, provide him, like, information where to find, like, another chip. Because they're like, well, nah, ours is kind of gone already. You mm-hmm. kind of have to go somewhere else for that. So, uh, if I remember correctly, Shady Sands is supposed to be the first, like, new place you find. And it's, like, an actual, like, hand-built settlement. Like, they, you know, have, like, adobe walls and whatnot. It's not like they're just, like, living in some, like, shacks and whatnot. Right. Uh, the Fallout series is... With the with some exceptions, are pretty big about being like, yeah, most society is just actually trying to rebuild. They're not just living in the old ruins. Mm-hmm. Like there are definitely some that are like, um, there's this place called the Boneyard, which is just Los Angeles, for instance. Right. Call that because you know the skeletal structure of the skyscrapers kind of look like bones, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like that still like exists a little bit, but um, for the most part, this is like our first uh, like image of, like, society trying to rebuild itself is seeing this town on a shady sands. So, eventually, the Vault Dweller reaches the ruins of Bakersfield. Uh, Bakersfield being the site of Vault 12. A vault that was purposely designed to fail! (laughs) (laughs) Specifically, its door would never properly close. Uh, Fun fact, Vault 13 was also specifically designed to fail. That watership had an expiration date, even though it didn't have to. Uh, Because, once again, Vault Tech, they're a nightmare. Yep. So, the reason why Vault 12 was supposed to fail, though, is that vault wanted to see what would happen when a large population was exposed to a ton of radiation. 
Mm-hmm. Y- you might you might think like I don't y- know if we need to know this. Yeah, and also, aren't you gonna see? Aren't you gonna see that experiment in like a lot of places, <laughs> like the entire world? Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure why they decided to go about this one. Yeah, yeah, but they did. They did, and it turns out what happens is that they either die or get turned into ghouls. And so the place around Bakersfield now becomes known as the Necropolis, or the City of Ghouls. Mm. So when the Vault Dweller arrives in Necropolis, he's able to recover the Vault 12 water chip. So he's like, great, everything's done. Except he witnesses something he's never seen before, or he or she. Mm. A group of giant green humanoid figures that attack Uh... the ghoul settlement around and destroy it. They call themselves the Super Mutants. And they claim they're under orders to capture the citizens of Vault 12. And the person who gave this order is somebody called the Master, or the supposed creator of the Super Mutants. So the Vault Dweller goes, that seems bad. He goes <laughs> back to Vault 13, gives the Overseer the water chip. And, you know, the Overseer's like, yeah, that's pretty rad. Thanks. Hey, I'm a little worried about these Super Mutants. Uh, seems like they're attacking vaults, and they might attack our vaults. You need to go find out what's going on with them. So he sends the Vault Dweller back out to investigate the Super Mutants and stop them if he can. So the Vault Dweller goes out into the wasteland again. And after wandering through the ruins of Los, Ange- Los Angeles uh, and other places such as Junktown and, and what have you, they stumble upon a location called the Lost Hills Bunker. There they run into an organized force of power armor wielding minigun wearing soldiers. I'm going to redo that. <laughs> There, they run into an organized force of power armor-wearing, minigun-wielding soldiers. Led by a man named John Maxton, they call themselves the Brotherhood of Steel. Alex, how do you feel about the Brotherhood of Steel? They're super cool, right up until they're not. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. They're definitely guys you want to have on your side, and they seem like they're cool wanting to help people, and then they're like, yes, anyways, we need to, we need to murder the inferior people, and you're like, oh, wait. Oh, oh, ooh. Uh, ooh. Mm. Oh, man, but you got mm. the X, you got the new Xbox. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> so the Brotherhood of Steel is likely the most consequential faction in the entire Fallout series. Mm-hmm. They were founded by a U.S. Army captain named Roger Maxson, and they were a technology cult dedicated to preservation of all human knowledge and technology. Now, they didn't originally start out like this. When the bombs fell, Roger Maxson took his team, they went to the Lost Hills bunker, and they went, man, things are messed up. We got to make sure we save as many people as possible. Mm. Then they realized, oh, that's probably not going to be possible. So instead, what we're going to do is we're going to preserve technology so that when humanity gets its shit together, we can basically teach them about it, and then we could rebuild society. Right. Okay. This this eventually sort of gets lost in the translation to be like, we need to just get all technology. Right. So they, be, they become a technology cult, essentially. And while they are willing to help those in need, that is secondary to their main mission of preserving technology. So, like, imagine a trolley problem, and you have a computer on one rail, and you have a load of people on the other. Right. Bad news. They're going to save that computer. Got to save that computer. Need Gotta that computer s- for the future. They saved a bunch of all recipes, recipes on there. We need to yep. save it. Yep. <laughs> Humanity so, yeah. is not the future. Technology is the future. <laughs> meatloaf is the future. And we can only learn meatloaf using technology. That's true. <laughs> so, yeah. Overall, their attitude is rather standoffish to outsiders. Like, outsiders 
at this point anyways, can't join the Brotherhood of Steel. Mm -hmm. But as long as you don't try to claim any technology or knowledge for yourself, you'll likely be okay. If not, they will kill you. Right. So it turns out that John Maxson is aware of the super mutants, has been kind of beating the war drums, mm -hmm. trying to convince the rest of the Brotherhood leadership to take him seriously. Uh, regardless, though, uh, if you like, can help him like convince the rest of the Brotherhood to take the fight to the mutants, the Vault Dweller will learn that the super mutants seem to be coming and going from a place called the Cathedral, located in South Los Angeles. So you go to the Cathedral, you find out that there's this cult there that uh, called the Cult of Unity, I believe? Or the Cult of the Atom, one or the other. Mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah, the Master's great. He's going to save us all. And you're like, that's kind of weird. When you go into the basement of the cathedral, you discover that it's actually the location of the Los Angeles Vault. And inside of there, you find a bunch of super mutants. And depending on what happens, either by getting captured, sneaking in, or fighting your way through, the Vault Dweller eventually encounters the Master. The Master is a horrifying-looking creature made up of various human body parts, all mutated with tentacles, weird eyes poking out, and a computer that seems to be embedded in his chest for some reason. Okay. So, born Richard Monroe, it turns out he was alive during the Great War and took shelter in one of the vaults. He ended up getting exiled after he committed a slight case of murder and relocated to a, no, relocated to a town called The Hub, becoming a doctor and well-respected by the community. This should be the end of his story, except one day, he goes on a caravan ac expedition to like an older military base in Mariposa, California. Mm -hmm. And there, he has a very unfortunate Joker-like accident where he basically <laughs> trips and falls into a vat of acid. Oh. And by acid, I mean a liquefied virus called a forced evolutionary virus, or FEV for short. Why did they have that? Great question. So... Before the war, there was this company called West Tech. You see, there was a plague that was kind of going around the country. Okay. And they were like, well, what if we fight virus with virus? And so they did. Uh -huh. They created, yeah, they created a virus that basically granted you immunity from this virus. The U.S. military saw that and said, hmm, what if we made a bioweapon with that? And they said, can do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> And so they did. And now this uh, bioweapon could do a lot of things. It could be trained to kill people, or it could be trained to cause incredibly weird mutations. And they went with the incredibly weird mutation side of things. Okay. Yeah. Other fun facts. Uh, this military base is where um, uh, the original Maxton and his team were. Uh -huh. They were guarding the scientists there, and when the bombs fell, they basically left there to go find, like, you know, found the Brotherhood and whatnot. So that's how, so they, they sort of know this exists as well. So the master, now all mutated and whatnot, he's like, huh, that's kind of weird. It seems to have made me somehow impressively intelligent. And he's like, what am I going to do with my newfound intelligence? What if I start dipping random things into this vat of goo? <laughs> so he does. <laughs> mm, okay. It's it's funny because like they set this up as like the master's like gained this immense amount of intelligence and whatnot. But um, he's going to, as I'll I'll tell you what his plan is, and I'll tell you how one of the ways you're gonna do it. And when you hear it, you're gonna be like, "This guy's kind of dumb, ain't he?" Uh -huh. <laughs> so he keeps dipping things in there, and at one point he puts like a dog and a rat in it at the same time, and they come out fused together in this like grotesque abomination. And uh -huh. he goes, "Huh, it's cool. It's like they're unified as one common creature." And then he also realizes that since he's been like had such an incredible exposure to FEV, like he was literally in this vat for days. Mm -hmm. He has, like, psychic powers now, and he can actually control FEV mutated creatures with his mind. So he's like, 
oh, I'm going to now start a new cult called Unity. Okay. <laughs> Unity is dedicated to exposing the entire world to FEV, making him to creatures like himself, and unifying all creatures under his command. So the Vault Dweller encounters the Master, and there are different things you can do to either like convince him his plan is dumb. You could also join him and get dipped into the vats yourself if you really want to. Okay. Um... One of the things he does, you can ask him, is like, hey, why are you kidnapping all these vaults villains? And it's apparently because genetically pure, or genetically pure is inaccurate, uh, people who have not been exposed to radiation are more likely to become super mutants. Whereas people like just outside, like running running around, right. only have like a 10% chance. Uh, the rest just sort of die. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You also point out, it's like, hey, so what happens after you, um, you mutate everybody? He's like... Well, then we'll just start creating more super mutants and just keep the race going. He's like, but super mutants are sterile. He's like, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. Um, So this sounds like Black Isle was making a Western RPG in the mid 90s. And so they wanted an Eldritch Horror final boss, but Mm -hmm. they were making an RPG about nuclear fallout. Yeah. And... So they had to figure out how to make an Eldritch Abomination in the context of nuclear fallout. Mm-hmm. And yep. this is how they did it. Yeah, I, I really should have gotten a picture of the Master to show you, because, yeah, he looks like an Eldritch Horror sort of creature. Yeah. Yeah, he, he totally does. And so, yeah, I, I think you're pretty much on the money with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, for what whatever co- thing you do, whether you just blow him up or convince him to let you blow him up, because he's like, oh, yeah, we're all going to be sterile. Whoops. Yeah. All right, well... Uh, Guess I'll die now. (laughs) (laughs) You overload the vault's nuclear reactor, causing it to level the surrounding area, killing most of the mutants in the process. With this mission complete, the vault dweller then returns the Vault 13, where they're greeted as heroes. However, the overseer, worried that the experience has changed them too much, and worried that its experiences might cause others to leave, exiles the vault dweller. He's straight up like, hey, thanks! Anyways, you gotta leave now. (laughs) Uh, depending on, like, what perks you have and whatnot, you could literally just blow him in half <laughs> and then leave. Uh, then they travel south to a town called Arroyo, where they live out the rest of their days. And that's Fallout. Okay. Yeah, pretty cool game. Um, there's a ton that I have left out. <laughs> right. Because there are so many, like, side quests. There's so many, like, little things you can do. Like, this is a game you literally can take 60 hours or take six minutes to beat. Like, mm-hmm. anywhere in between. Right. It's a very interesting game at the time, too, because you actually were playing on a time limit as well. Uh, you basically, if you took too long, um, the super mutants would actually just discover the vault and kill everyone inside. And then it's like, game over. Good job, idiot. Huh. Yeah, it was actually a major criticism of the game at the time. And he did like release a patch eventually that was like, OK, if you can at least find a water caravan to go back uh, and supply them with water, um, you could just kind of play indefinitely. It's right. fine. Right. Or uh, find the water chip, I guess I should say. Uh, you can't find a water caravan to give you more time to find the water chip. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was. it's very interesting in the, like how open-ended it is. And with its sequel, Fallout 2, it's only going to get even more open-ended. Uh, it's actually what, it's one of those, these things where most people agree that Fallout, a game commonly considered one of the greatest games of all time, has a sequel where it's actually just straight up better. Yeah, is what to I've the heard. Point, 
Yeah, to the point where, like, when I was, like, talking about, man, I should play Fallout 1 and Fallout 2. They're like, don't start with Fallout 2. It's 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 kind of right. like we were talking off stream about, like, Dark Souls, where it's like, mm-hmm. don't start with the old, like, don't start with the new ones if you plan on playing the old ones. Right, you can't go backwards. <laughs> yeah, so I decided to spend a lot of setup for, like, doing a lot of setup in Fallout. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get through Fallout 2 pretty darn quickly, but uh, there's some... There's some interesting things that go on in that game, and it sets up some things that are going to have some major ramifications going forward. Mm-hmm. All right. So Fallout 2, released on September 30th, 1998 for the PC, once again developed by Black Isle Studios. Uh, nothing too crazy to really talk about as far as its development is concerned. My my understanding is that it was a relatively smooth development mm-hmm. and one that was relatively, you know, was pretty well anticipated. Right. So Fallout 2 is an interesting game, and it takes place roughly about 60 years or so after the first Fallout, uh, uh, taking place in the year 2241. And, they, and it starts you out in the humble village of Arroyo. So you play actually as a descendant of the original Vault Dweller. Okay. Although in, although in your case, you're now known as the Chosen One. <laughs> oh. Yes. Uh, All yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. Good old, I think, technically grandson of the Vault Dweller is like, guess what? You're a chosen one, buddy. And it's like, oh, jeez. Oh, that's a lot of expectation, man. Yeah. <laughs> now, before you actually get introduced to this character, uh, the game starts out with the fun little uh, FMV video, uh, which uh, includes a 3D Vault Boy and everything, which is great. <laughs> Telling the people of Vault 13 that, hey, guess what? The United States government has given the all clear. It's time to leave and go to the outside world repopulate everything so the people of vault 13 open the door and are met by a bunch of people in power armor mm. uh vertebrates which are like uh basically helicopters essentially mm-hmm. and upon waving to these seemingly american soldiers are immediately gunned down all right we're gonna learn a little bit more what their deal is in uh, let's say 10 minutes or so okay so in arroyo we find out that they are now undergoing just an incredibly awful drought. One that is just the worst on record. Mm-hmm. So the village elder gets the chosen one and is like, hey, listen, we heard of this thing called the Garden of Eden Creation Kit, or Gek for short, which was this briefcase-like object that every vault came with. The idea is that it would have everything you need to restart society. Now, depending on the game, the Garden of Eden Creation Kit could be anything from like all right, it has some seeds and some basic instructions as far as what to do, water mm. purification tablets, that sort of thing, to uh, other games just being literal magic. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, just sort of uh, just sort of depends on yeah. the game. Just straight up, like, <laughs> matter fabricators. Yeah, pretty much. Like, I think, like, the seed sort of, like, in water purification part is, uh, like, the Fallout 2 side of it. Mm-hmm. The magic part is Fallout 3, where, if, like, literally if you try to use a Gek in that game... It just like explodes in blue light and kills you. <laughs> uh, hmm. But um, but yeah, you're tasked with finding one of these. And so naturally it's like, hey, we're going to give you your old grandfather's ju- like vault jumpsuit, his old pit boy, which is like this handheld device that has a computer in it. Mm-hmm. And like, just go and just figure this out. Go um, go back to vault 13 where your grandfather came from. See if you can't find a get because we know they never left. So you get to vault 13 and you find first off, there's nobody there. Well, that's not true. There's a bunch of monsters called Death Claws. Ah, uh, boy. Death Claws are cool. They're like lizard creatures that were 
before the government uh, collapsed, <laughs> they were created in order to be a biological weapon right. using FEV, everyone's favorite, <laughs> everyone's favorite virus. So they're like eight foot tall, like like weird demon looking monster things. Yeah. And most of them are just absolutely crazy and will just murder on sight. These ones don't though. They're actually super intelligent creatures. Now they are dropped there to basically murder anybody who came back. Mm -hmm. But upon um, the chosen one's arrival, they're like, hey, no, listen, we're cool. We actually hate the people who put us there because they basically have done nothing but experiment on us. So introducing themselves as death claws, they go, hey, the people who came here kidnapped all the people that lived in this vault, and they called themselves the Enclave. So the Enclave, it turns out, are a mysterious group that just claims they're the U.S. government. They just showed up one day and were like, hey, people from the vaults, come on out. We need you to come with us. Mm -hmm. And so they've been going to the, all the various different vaults and basically just taking people from them. Now, they've apparently been doing this for about a period of 50 years or so, but they've oh. really ramped up recently where they're now just taking vaults full of people. So the Chosen One finds it strange and like decides to keep wandering and figure out what the heck is going on with them. And so eventually he ends up, he or she ends up in the town or now city of Shady Sands. And boy, has Shady Sands become a, become a real important place. Hmm. So in about the 60 or so years since the Vault Dweller did his thing, saving Tandy and all that. Right. Uh, it turns out that Eridesh was like, outsiders are pretty cool. We should team up with all the other surrounding settlements and reform a country, reform a government. Mm -hmm. And so they created the New California Republic. Okay. Now, in those days, the New California Republic was, was pretty small and really more just a collection of settlements. But after Eridesh just sort of mysteriously disappeared one day, his daughter Tandy was named the president of the New California Republic. Um... The only instance of this being a weird, you know, hereditary sort of uh, passing down of the torch. Mm -hmm. uh, the New California Republic past this point is going to be a democracy. But over the next 50 or I think actually like 40 years or so, Tandy is going to be in charge of the New California Republic as a very idealized sort of person. And under her stewardship, it becomes more like the pre-war United States, except being less, um, less shady. Okay. <laughs> Less, less like weird experiments on people and and what have you. Right. So they end up becoming a, a country of about over 700,000 uh, are steadily expanding and in general are the, like the one place where you can like live and not live in fear of like raiders coming and murdering you or rat scorpions coming and eating your children and what have you. Mm hmm. Now, they are obviously very concerned about the Enclave because they're like, we don't have the firepower to deal with these people. But with the Chosen One, they, they basically start to piece together what's going on. And they figure out that, hey, all these people, all these troops are moving back and forth between here, the old Mariposa military base where they're getting FEV samples, okay. and this offshore oil rig. So, and you can learn about this oil rig in many different ways because, once again, Fallout 2 is very open-ended. Mm-hmm. But for our purposes, let's say this is just how they learn it. And so the chosen one goes out to goes out to deal with this. Now, before this happens, a couple of bad things happen. So the chosen one's village royal just sort of all of a sudden everybody spontaneously dies. Oh, OK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They all just like develop internal hemorrhaging and just like bleed out, which is like, hmm, seems bad. Seems yeah. not ideal. 
Also, all the Death Claws end up getting absolutely murdered by Yonclave, mostly because they're like, hey, you're supposed to be under our control, and you just decided to not do that. Right. We're going to send uh, this giant super mutant clad in power armored, whose name is Frank Corrigan, to just go and murder the hell out of you, which he does. So they, so, they have Death Claws and super mutants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Mm-hmm. And, like... Super mutants are now just, like, a part of society. Like, there's, mm. like, some intelligent super mutants that you run into during the game, like Marcus, who's, like, trying to, like, get the super mutants together to form their own community, and, like, just others who just, like, kind of live in town as, like, hired muscle and whatnot. Right. Uh, so, like, just like ghouls and whatnot, they're all just becoming part of this, like, giant, like, society <laughs> that's, like, starting to, like, finally coalesce. That's, that's kind of rad. It kind of is. Like, yeah, we're reforming humanity. Also, the ghouls and super mutants are here. And yeah, maybe and the death cool. claw. Like there's just there's just monsters in society now. There are. Yeah, and it's like it's really cool because like there's also like intelligent robots are hanging out right. from before the war. And like Yeah, Fallout 2 does a really good job of being like the first Fallout is like everything's like separate and like just barely clinging on. And right. Fallout 2 is like, no, there's now society is now growing. It's now coalescing into something. Right. Things are being rebuilt. There's just ogres and robots now. Yeah. And like you can go, like, all over the place. Like, you can go to, like, Reno, Nevada. This is now called New Reno. And basically, like, fight with a bunch of gangs and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And, and like, do, like, a whole bunch of other stuff, like, that are just... You don't have to really engage within the game. But once again, there's just so many decisions, so many weird stuff you can do in it that I really, really like what they do. Yeah. Yeah, so... Point is, though, eventually you go to this oil rig that's off the California coast. And then that's when you learn that the Enclave, which claims it's the United States government... Mm -hmm. actually kind of is the United States government. <laughs> oh. Yeah, so it turns out what happened is that in 2077, all, like, reports and all simulations said, hey, listen, a nuclear war is going to happen. Mm -hmm. We're invading China. We're doing well. They are going to eventually, you know, press the button to send the bomb. Right. So we need to ensure that there's continuity with the U.S. government. So we're going to get all our cool scientists, all our leadership. We're all going to go to this oil rig mm -hmm. and just hang out there and wait it out. Now, obviously, this didn't work out because there's no United States anymore. <laughs> right. Um, also, is, a, is an oil rig a good place to hide from a nuclear war? Apparently so. <laughs> okay. I feel like it's sort of exposed and surrounded by the ocean. I, you know, I would think that too, but I guess they're like, nobody's going to look for us at this oil rig. And apparently they had enough supplies and whatnot to actually maintain it and like rebuild a, a military and like research a new cool power armor and stuff. Right. So the, the Enclave. Oh, go ahead. The, does an oil rig have radiation shielding? You know, I don't think so. But, eh, you know, prevailing wind's going to take everything to the east. So... Oh, it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. Hopefully, the prevailing winds that are, you know, from Hawaii won't sweep radiation over us. But, you know, it'll be fine. So, they all hang out on this oil rig. And as we're going to later learn in other games that really want to have the Enclave in them, mm -hmm. sometimes for no reason, the Enclave has different points for, like, little control all over the United States, including uh -huh. West Virginia for some reason. Yeah, that seems like a, a long distance to be able to maintain dominion over post-apocalypse yeah it really does but as we're gonna as we'll talk about uh next time west virginia for some reason is just a magnet for everything in the fallout universe yeah you know just just as a, a 
as an aside, you know, the these first two games take place in California and New Vegas obviously takes place in Nevada. Um and that's that's like cool. It's like it, it makes sense that there's like all this stuff sort of takes over this area. Setting your games in West Virginia and Washington DC and Boston on the other side of the continent is a really difficult place to have the exact same things happening. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, cuz it We'll get to this next time, but the, they decided right. to basically reboot and reset the table in many ways with oh. Fallout 3 on. Right. It, in a way that when I said earlier about Fallout kind of ripping off itself, yeah, it, it basically does that. <laughs> yeah. That. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But in the meantime, the thing right. that they're ripping, they're going to be ripping them off, the Enclave, hanging out on this oil rig. And yeah, they basically consist of former members of the U.S. government and whatnot, or really more accurately, their descendants now. Mm-hmm. Um, so they like still have like a Senate and everything. And basically what happens is their, their president is this man by the name of Dick Richardson. (laughs) (laughs) He's great. That's, that's, that's a good one. That's a good name. It is. It is really, really good. Now, good old Dick. His dad was also president and through scheming and manipulation, got his son put in charge of the United States government or okay. what, or I guess the enclave, we should just say now. Uh-huh. Uh, so he's going to rule the enclave for about five terms and whatnot, and of course still is now mm-hmm. uh, as of this game. And so during that time, they this is when they start, you know, kidnapping civilians and whatnot and, you know, doing experiments and kind of figure out, like, rebuilding their supplies so they can make their grand big old re-entrance into the world and uh-huh. reestablish the United States. Now, the problem is, is during their all their travels and whatnot, their scoutings and, and all that, they discover that there's a lot of things like ghouls and, ra- and like, you know, super mutants and irradiated people in general. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, that's just not, that's not any good. You know, we gotta, mm-hmm. people who have radiation are not going to live as long. They're going to be damaged. They're not genetically pure anymore, Alex. Right. Uh-huh. And we gotta do, we gotta do something about that. Aren't so, they sterile? Um, the mutants are, but you know, all the rest of the people aren't, you know, they're, 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 they aren't sterile. Oh. The, your average everyday citizen living out in the wastes. Right. Yeah. Cause you see. They kind of think that since they've been exposed to radiation, unlike the people on the Enclave, you know, that's just that's just no good. The, so the people in the Enclave have been exposed to no radiation. Somehow. None whatsoever in the in the 60, 80 years of the nuclear wasteland in which they were on an oil rig. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not not at all. Oh. Zero radiation. Okay. Yeah. It's probably a lie because their their entire philosophy and the things they say, like when you encounter mm-hmm. them, are like usually at odds with like their stated actions or even right. things they said in the previous sentence. So, okay. so so they're an allegory for like racial supremacy. They are of, of and, being complete nonsense and generally falsehoods. Yep, pretty much. Okay. So they have a real fun plan to you know cleanse the wasteland. Uh huh. So. They got a hold of samples of FEV, and they went, hmm, what if we went more the bioweapon direction with this as opposed to making mutants direction? Right. So after a bunch of tests, I think like five or so, they developed 
a wonderful little virus that basically when people are exposed to it causes them to hemorrhage and bleed out which is what happens to people in arroyo okay and their plan is they're going to just release into the jet stream and kill literally everybody on the planet (laughs) now you're probably asking yourself but wait hold on won't you also die Uh uh-huh no because they're going to use a version of the fev to create a antidote that they're going to inoculate themselves with and by being inoculated they'll be absolutely fine in fact they've already tested it out on their vice president and well an earlier version of it and Mm -hmm. he's now completely fine except for the fact that he's like mentally unstable except for that part oh yeah right right yeah you you can run into him like like talk to him and he like he just like talks in circles and when like when you talk to like uh dick richardson he's like Mm -hmm. yeah um your antidote really messed up your vice president he's like well yeah he's a little loopy but his spelling got better so it's fine Uh uh-huh also is that not also a mutation because you know, it's, it's the FEV, which its purpose is to mutate. It's all, they, yeah, the thing the thing that says force evolutionary virus <laughs> might be a mutation. Are, are, are they not exposing themselves to mutations in this plan? Well, yeah, but it's th- their mutations, so it's fine. Uh-huh. <laughs> We're not hypocrites at all. Like, please. <laughs> the U.S. government being hypocritical. Imagine. Imagine. <laughs> <laughs> oh okay so the, uh, these people are nuts that's good that's yeah good. they are like abs- they are they are absolutely nuts um every single one of them and so yeah after killing their top lieutenant frank corrigan i uh, you could basically choose to you know destroy the enclave by destroying their oil rig and escaping at the last moment uh-huh. uh i believe you could also join them in this game as well if you want to but canonically that oil rig goes up in flames everybody on that dies cool and theoretically, the um, the Enclave dies with it, and the last remnants of the United States government go with it. The Chosen One then returns to the Wasteland. They are hailed as a hero by the NCR. Statues are put up of them all over the place. Uh, depending on the actions that you do, uh, you know, your children will also, like, accomplish great things. And the NCR itself continues to expand. Uh, President Tandy eventually passes away, and the person who does replace him uh kind of goes back being towards more steers the ncr being back towards more like a pre-war united states in the sense of more like uh let's say more like 1870s america in the sense of it starts to become uh very ambitious with its expansion plan mm. and it starts to really style itself as the successor to the united states afterwards uh-huh. uh things that will become it's uh consequences that will become very acute in fallout new vegas but with that, that is the end of Fallout 2. So after this, uh, these two very successful games, Interplay was obviously keen on making a Fallout 3. Mm-hmm. And so they got started on it. Yeah. A game called Van Buren. Now, Van Buren is, well, it never came out. Mm-hmm. At least not in not in the form that uh, Black Isle wanted it to. It eventually would. Fallout New Vegas in very much is basically the true Fallout 3 in many ways. Right. But and it takes a lot of elements that are going to come from Van Buren. Essentially, it was going to tell a story, I think, about 40 years later with the NCR locked in a conflict with a set of tribes called Caesar's Legion. One being a a, a sort of slave-based society and the other, the NCR, uh, itself, you know, being essentially trying to liberate all those people, but via the power of capitalism, also kind ah. of enslaving its own people. Uh-huh. Um, 
and it was going to I think it was going to be taking place like in pretty thoroughly in the Midwestern part of the United States. So mm-hmm. furthering that expansion out. Right. Uh, yeah, it there was a, a very very lengthy um document uh called a I think it's the Van Buren Bible or it might be part of the Fallout Bible that Chris Avalon put together mm-hmm. that kind of details the entire plan for this game. Unfortunately though, that never came to pass because unfortunately Interplay kind of got into financial trouble right after Fallout 2 came out. Wow, I can't believe it. Now, we're not going to spend too much time on this because, once again, I kind of want to do a podcast on Interplay. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. But ne- but needless to say, they um, were nearing bankruptcy in in 1998. And, well, one of the ways they tried to get out of it is they literally got listed on, uh, on the NASDAQ stock exchange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Raised valuation, which is like, I don't know why people would want to invest in a, in a company that's near bankrupt, but I mean, it did technically save them, so I guess it worked out. All right. Unfortunately, it didn't really solve their the crunch that they were under. So in 2003, I believe, they ended up dissolving Black Isle Studios. Mm. And while they attempted to release other Fallout games, such as Fallout Tactics, a game set in Chicago where you play as members of the Brotherhood of Steel, mm-hmm. and Fallout Brotherhood of Steel... <laughs> An action-adventure game that we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about because it's not canon, but it <laughs> takes place in Texas where you play as either a bruising man, a very scantily dressed lady, or a ghoul, and they're all somehow part of the Brotherhood. You know the Brotherhood. Real up with those ghouls. Yeah. That Brotherhood. Yeah, they love them. Uh, it's a very funny game to like watch gameplay of because it's very much of its time. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Everyone is tatted up to the nines, like, all the women are in G-strings, even whether it makes sense or not. That game (laughs) was... It's very extreme. That game was absolutely just, hey, Champions of Norath was really popular. Mm Mm-hmm. What have we made? What are those? We 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 have an RPG we can do with that. (laughs) That would be cool, right? Everyone will love that. Nobody loved it. No one. Yeah, Fallout Tactics was well-received, but uh, Fallout Brotherhood of Steel certainly was not. No. And by 2005, the series, it felt like... Well, actually, 2004, I believe. Mm -hmm. The series essentially was dead. And Interplay, in financial trouble, decided that they needed to shed some IPs in order to stay afloat. So they decided to do the only thing they thought they could do. They sold the rights to Fallout to a little company called Bethesda. (laughs) Or I guess perhaps more accurately, to their parent company, Zenimax. And next time, we're going to be talking about the games developed by Bethesda Game Studios and Todd Howard. Fallout 3, Fallout New Vegas, which admittedly not developed by them, but published. And Fallout 4. Fallout 4 in particular, a game (laughs) that is such a mess (laughs) story-wise that, boy, I can't wait to tell you all about it. <laughs> oh boy, uh, Alex, how are you feeling? I, I feel good. I like the, it's such a wild series. Like just its whole existence is an insane mess. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. Like as I mentioned earlier, this game should not exist. Yeah, like they they made the game for EA, and then EA went, "We're not going to let you make the sequels because you want to publish them, and we're not going to sell you the IP, so it's right. not going to happen." And they went, well, we're just going to rip it off. (laughs) (laughs) 
Which, and then Wasteland went on to revive in its own form off of Kickstarter. Yeah, Wasteland 2, yeah. And 2 and 3, actually. And yeah. they're both, from my understanding, very good games. That, that's what I hear, yeah. But the, they it had to be dead long enough for EA to stop caring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which you got to be dead a long time for EA to stop. Well, just to let other people touch it, I guess yeah. I should say. They'll, they'll stop caring pretty quickly, it yes. turns out. But they'll, uh, they will hold on to it just in case. Just in case. Just in case they want to do something with it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of crazy. And it's games like Fallout and Fallout 2 don't exist anymore. Well, I guess they do with, like, Wasteland to a certain extent. Right. But even even not to the extent, like... Like Fallout 2's like weird level of choice had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, like maybe the closest thing you can get it would be if not Wasteland and um uh Obsidian. Oh god, what were those games that Obsidian uh, developed? Pillars of Eternity? Yeah, Pillars of Eternity. Like those mm-hmm. kind of scratch that itch in a way, albeit right. in a fantasy setting as opposed to like a sci-fi post-apocalyptic sort of way. Yeah. Now I, I think from a story standpoint, what's interesting to me about Fallout is how pretty much every one of them is very heavily a reflection of their time Mm -hmm. oh yes so like again fallout one is very much like this it was the i think i would say like the later end of the crpg era so you had things like baldur's gate and uh like icewind dale and uh, yeah um and i was gonna say uh what is the cthulhu call of cthulhu uh, mm-hmm. Which is not, you know, strictly a CRPG, I think, but you know, very, very much in that vein of like, you know, open world adventure story. Um, and then Fallout Two falls sort of more near the, I would say, like the Deus Ex side of the of things, where it's like it's it's very open ended. There's a lot of choice. There's a lot of complexity to the factions and yeah, and yeah, paths that you can take through the thing. Yeah, the the levels that you can break that game and the way that the developers totally anticipated that you could potentially break the game that right. way is very reflective in, yeah, Deus Ex and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally, totally. And then yeah, Fallout I, I, 3, we'll see, is, uh, we know Elder Scrolls. Mm-hmm. We got this game called Oblivion. Yep. This is real popular. People like it. we did it. that? <laughs> I was one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, story story wise, I always I, I find Fallout very fascinating in the sense that it, in many ways, it doesn't really pull a whole lot of punches as far as like yeah. what it has to say about like America and mm-hmm. like it's the way it looks back nostalgically on old eras and being like, no, it's actually those, those are actually kind of terrible. Yeah, yeah, you know, the, a lot of them are intentionally whitewashed and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And like, I I like the idea of like when you encounter. Like people like living in the old ruins among like these like incredibly shiny protectrons and whatnot, and like all of, like the weird chrome and whatnot, and like idealized like like man eat your sugar bombs posters uh-huh. and whatnot, and they're all like dead eyed and like life is hell. These people did not prepare us. Right. <laughs> like I love that juxtaposition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, admittedly, the games later in the series, as we'll talk about next week, are going to kind of go a little too hard in that direction in some ways. A little bit, yeah. Mm-hmm. But we'll we'll talk about that when we get there. But yeah, great. As these podcast episodes usually start out with, mm-hmm. games are pretty pretty darn great. The stories are pretty darn good. Yeah. And then, and then next week we're going to be like... <laughs> and then the troubles. <laughs> and then the troubles. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that'll be for next time. Alex, 
Thank you for joining me as always. Definitely do appreciate it. Of course. And uh, hopefully we'll see you all in, well, actually it's going to be two weeks. We're going to be taking a week off after this just because uh, there's going to be things going on. Yes, indeed. But, uh, but yeah, we'll see you then, everybody.